working without trusting is anxious and empty. Working with trusting is restful and fruitful. Well, good morning, everyone. It's an absolute joy to be here. Uh, greetings, first of all, from my wife, Megan, and uh, the kids that I left behind, Lawrence. Uh, my oldest son is here. I uh, won't, won't point him out and embarrass him, but uh, greetings from the rest of the Collinses who couldn't be here. Uh, I also bring greetings from Grace Baptist Church in Singapore, uh, where I'm currently serving as a pastor um, that church prays for you regularly, uh, is grateful for you. You may not know them, but they've gotten to know you as I've shared about you. Uh, I brought with me Sam Ho. Sam, where are you? I'm making you raise your hand. Sam is one of our staff at Grace. Uh, please get to know him. Uh, I, I intend and hope very much to, to steal him from Grace. Don't tell them that. Uh, hopefully they're not going to listen to this broadcast. But um, we are both very thankful to be here. Um, I have been in Singapore for, oh, it's coming up on two years now, and, and love the place. Uh, there is so much about Singapore that is uh, great. I love the food. So they have these things called hawker centers where you can go down and just, you can eat like four meals, but you, it doesn't count because they're just like restaurants right next to each other. Um, I, I love the swirl of nationalities that are there and ethnicities. Um, so Malay, Indian, Chinese, Indonesian, a, a really amazing place in, in lots of ways. It's a clean city. Uh, the traffic is, is really smooth. My kids love moving around on the public transportation. But I've been there long enough uh, to start to get to know some of Singapore's problems too. Uh, and one of the biggest problems in Singapore is a problem of sleeplessness. So there, there's, a, there's a man at our church who is at the National University of Singapore. He's one of the, the, the world's foremost researchers on the problem of sleeplessness. His name is Michael Chi. You can read his articles online. Uh, it, it doesn't matter whether it's through... Uh, kind of online polls that they do where people kind of can, can say what their, what their sleep average is on, uh, by night or whether they use like uh, smart watches to track people's sleep. Uh, Singapore is regularly at the top in terms of countries in the world, in terms of least sleep. Now maybe you think Shanghai is better. But just a, a couple of years ago, the Sanofi Institute in Suzhou, it's a biomedical research company, uh, they did a survey of, of all major cities in China in terms of sleeplessness. And, and the way they measured it is either, so three things, uh, not being able to fall asleep in a reasonable amount of time, waking up more than a certain number of times per night, or just getting less than six hours of sleep. All the cities that they surveyed in China, Shanghai was far and away number one. 88% of people were reporting sleeplessness. There weren't even any other cities that were in the 80s. 
I wonder if you've heard of this modern phenomenon called revenge bedtime procrastination. All right, that's the technical name. Fan kang xing shui jiao toyan. All right, revenge bedtime procrastination. It was popularized originally on Chinese social media. Uh, it's the way people are describing their strong need to reclaim some me time before bed. I, I think it's because from morning till night, our time is spoken for in so many ways by someone else. Right before bed, and probably fueled by the smartphones that, that we have in our hands, uh, people want to use that last hour or two before bed for me time. And so as they do studies, this extends our not sleeping by at least 40 minutes on average. It's a major problem. So this isn't the sermon, but move that charging station out of your bedroom, okay? And, and then stop doing that. Um, I don't think technology is our major problem with sleeplessness. I think it's a symptom. Uh, I think our shrinking rest comes from the anxiety and restlessness that haunts the modern secular world. I mean, as a society, we've bought into the idea that we can control our external environment and that this control is going to give us the, the sense of peace and safety that we desire. And, and then we pour all our energy into what we perceive will give us that control. So we glorify education and career advancement, and we amass wealth, we try to maintain health, and we just try to guard against every danger that might come our way. And in many ways, you have to say that we've succeeded. I mean, we have more money than any generation in history, we have a longer lifespan than any generation in history. And so surely we should be the least anxious generation that's ever been. Well, that's not the case, is it? I mean, you, you can measure this in lots of different ways. I read an article recently that said a, a third of US college students already have a, a diagnosed depression disorder of some kind on their medical record. It's a third of college students already. Uh, many have described our age as an anxious age. A better word is probably the word angst, which is defined as a, as a feeling of deep anxiety or dread that, that isn't focused on any one thing. It's just the, the human condition or the state of the world in general. So what's going on? Well, I don't think it's accidental for secularism to breed anxiety. Uh, if, you, if you're the captain of the, your fate and the master of your soul, then you're taking on yourself more than you were meant to bear. But I don't want to say that this phenomenon is a new one. We're going to look at a, a psalm this morning that was written more than 3,000 years ago. And King Solomon, in his old age, is reflecting on his life and telling us that this is not a new problem. I mean, what he's going to say speaks volumes about the difference between a life lived trusting yourself, relying on yourself, 
and a life lived trusting God, depending on him. The one, he tells us, is anxious and empty. The other is restful and fruitful. So it's my prayer this morning as we look at Psalm 127, that this psalm will help you have a fresh trust in God. You can turn there in a cop- your copy of God's Word, or I think it may be printed. Is it printed in the bulletin there? Okay, Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stands awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, as we begin, let's calibrate our interpretive expectations rightly. Uh, You should always do that as you come to Scripture. Ask what kind of Scripture are we looking at. This is a wisdom psalm. Uh, It shares a lot of similarities to Ecclesiastes or the book of Proverbs. Uh, As such, as wisdom literature, it communicates truth in a way that's generally true. You'll notice that we can't press the details of the psalm into every life. So, so for example, he, he seems to be saying here that, that hard work can be in vain. We might read a proverb like Proverbs 14.23, which says, All hard work brings profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. So, so, so we might say, is house building and standing watch and toiling for food to eat sometimes in vain? Or does it always bring a profit? Similarly, in the the second stanza there, we're told children are a reward from God. So so the single person or or the married couple struggling with infertility could wrongly conclude that they've done something wrong and God's not rewarding them. Or is it saying that if I only have one child, not a quiver full, that I'm I'm not blessed? Well, in wisdom literature, we, we get general truths that drive home a point. So as we're beginning here, Let's think about what the point is here. It's a a critical one. Uh, Let me give you the main point. You may want to write this down, and then you can talk to, to others about this over lunch. This is what I think is the main idea of the psalm. Working without trusting is anxious and empty. Working without trusting is anxious and empty. Working with trusting is restful and fruitful. Working without trusting is anxious and empty. Working with trusting is restful and fruitful. Those two statements will form the the two points of our outline. Uh, So let's think first about working without trusting is anxious and empty. Uh, I'm just realizing, I don't even know what Bible I grabbed this morning, but is this a different translation than what you have in your... Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm going to switch translations. Are you midstream here? Um, Unless the Lord builds the house, verse 1 and 2, the builders labor in vain... Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. All right, first two verses here, imagine three different scenarios. Let's get them in our mind. First, building a house. So an Israelite man who's at marriageable age would seek out a a bride and then build physically a house to live in. Uh, in Singapore, you can't do that. There's not really any land left to build your own house. You have to like 
apply for a BTO, a built-to-order house, and then like wait five years. Uh, here, it's a little simpler, maybe, but you got to enter in some sort of negotiation to buy the house, and, and that's a dreaded thing for many. Well, at that time, they could just start building right away. So that could be what's in Solomon's mind, but he could also be thinking about his own building projects. Remember, Solomon built a, a palace, a great palace, and then he was building for the Lord a, a temple. So he could be thinking about building a house in terms of those building projects. It's also possible that, that he's thinking about his, his descendants, his children. You, you may remember that God had promised his father David that he would build for him a house, meaning that his descendants would forever sit on the throne. His dynasty would go on into the future. So however we understand house, either a physical house or a future legacy, you and I should think about our future prospects. Okay, that's the first scene for us. The second scene or scenario is the watching over of a city. Uh, in ancient times, you have no way to know when a foreign army might attack you. Uh, so with all the people flowing into and out of a city through the city gate, it's essential that you have watchmen who are looking out and, and trying to see, do we need to raise the alarm and close the gates of the city? So this second scenario directs us to think about our own safety, our own protection, okay? Our third scenario is the most basic, rising up early, staying up late, toiling for food to eat. I don't know what your work day is like when you get up in the morning, when you got to be to work, how late you work. In Singapore, they, they don't like to get to work super early, it's a little bit later in the morning, but then they work to really late at night. So the the Hawker Center near my house where people eat, it is packed and bustling at 9 p.m., 10 p.m. at night. All right, I don't know what your workday is like, but this is asking us to think about our work to make a living, all right? So, so our provision, we could say. So these three scenarios, our prospects, future prospects, our protection, our provision, if I can alliterate those with P's. But the repetition here is that our efforts to achieve these things are all in vain. That's the repeated refrain here. The, the word means empty or useless. Unless the Lord is in your efforts, supporting these efforts, then the, the prospects, the protection, the provision is pointless. Add another P. Now I want to stop and think about this a bit because... <clears throat> I've already told you that this is wisdom literature, so we understand Solomon isn't saying, don't build your house, don't watch over the city, don't work for a living. Uh, he's saying that if God isn't building with you, watching with you, working with you, then what you're doing is all for nothing. Why would that be? Why can't we just throw ourselves into our career and our studies and not worry about our spiritual lives? Why can't we trust ourselves and be guaranteed of success. To ask the question the way we first phrased it, why is working without trusting empty and anxious? I want to give you three reasons. Number one, God's intervening sovereignty. God's intervening sovereignty. God has set up an orderly universe and a world that generally functions in a certain way. So the sun rises and sets, the rains come and go, and 
And usually it's in ways that allow us to assume that things will continue a certain way. But the older you get, the longer you live, the more you realize that you should expect the unexpected. So, so the person who's studied hard in school and, and prepared perfectly for their employment and, and keeps all their ducks in a row, they may succeed. But they also may, through some random health problem or crazy boss or, or some unexpected family crisis, have all of their careful plans come to nothing. It can happen to anybody at any time. And it may happen because God brings judgment in the short term. You might remember um, King Ahab in the Old Testament. 1 Kings 22, we, we read about him. It's an important verse, 1 Kings twenty-two thirty-four. 34. It's a good memory verse. Write it down, look at it later. Ahab was a careful planner. He, he was a master diplomat a shrewd military general. When he goes into battle, in a key battle, he actually disguises himself just when he knows that they're trying, the enemy army's trying to get his life. And his plans work. Except 1 Kings 22:34. Now a certain man drew his bow at random, struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. Judgment came upon Ahab in a way that he couldn't foresee. That's God's intervening sovereignty. It might bring our efforts to vanity because he steps in and decides it's going to be so. That's number one, why our efforts might be empty and anxious. The second reason is God's certain long-term judgment. God's certain long-term judgment. When Jesus concludes his great Sermon on the Mount, his final words are a meditation on the person who has worked to build a house. He might have had in his mind Psalm 127. The person has worked hard and they've successfully built a house with an ocean view. I mean, what's the equivalent? I mean, are there houses along the Huangpu somewhere? I mean, this is valuable property. This is success. Yet what does Jesus say? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Now, Jesus could be thinking about the storms of life, setbacks and suffering and that sort of thing, but, but I think ultimately he means the storms of final judgment, that word there, fell with a great crash. I think that's pointing to final judgment. To be judged, to be evaluated, means to have everything that you believe and the way that you've lived your life put forward on display and evaluated. It's what judgment is. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, it's so important for you to understand that Christians don't think that through their good works and doing lots of good things, that we can avoid judgment. That's not what we think. We, we don't think that we can somehow earn enough merit with God to avoid going through the, the judgment to come. The Bible clearly says that all have sinned 
and fallen short of the glory of God. Every person has offended the law of a holy God such that if he's just, and he is, he must bring us all into judgment. That's why we believe that God's love meant he had to provide a savior for us. That's what he did. That's who Jesus Christ is. When we say he's the savior, we mean he came to save us from that certain long-term judgment. He did it by living a perfect life, the, the life that you and I should have lived, but didn't. And then dying a death on that cross where he takes upon himself the wrath of God against everyone who would repent of their sins and trust in him. Uh, so if you hear nothing else this morning, hear that. That that offer of forgiveness through the death of Christ is what allows you to escape certain long-term judgment. In that sense, for a non-Christian, you should be anxious because what's awaiting you out there is judgment. Let your anxiety drive you to trust in Jesus Christ. But for the Christian, Christian anxiety comes from forgetting that truth. But God's certain long-term judgment is the second reason that all of our work might be rendered vain, will be rendered vain in the long term. It, everything will fall with a great crash. So God's intervening sovereignty is certain long-term judgment. Third reason working without trusting is empty and anxious, and that's that our work is under the curse. Uh, in verse 1, you may have noticed that the, the builders and the guards are in the third person. Uh, but in verse 2, Solomon makes it personal. He says, in vain you rise up early and stay up late. It's like he takes this general principle and wants to bring it home to all of us, to the reader. Uh, and he uses this interesting phrase, toiling for food to eat, or the other translation is eating the bread of anxious toil. That, that word toil, uh, in Hebrew, it's not the normal word for work. Uh, it's, it's actually, it refers to something painful. So in Genesis 3.16, when God curses the woman, uh, he says that he will greatly increase her pain in childbearing. That's the word here. So that, that's why the, the, they would translate it in the other translation, eating the bread of anxious toil. That's the idea. Not just your work day, but the anxiety-ridden labor of a person who's not sure that their work is going to be enough. When man jettisoned God and, and was cast out of Eden, work was cursed. It, it meant that our best efforts yield minimal and short-lived results. If you feel futility and frustration in your work, that's why. Work has intrinsic goodness, but is nevertheless under the curse. Therefore, when, when you and I put our trust in the work we're doing. When you put your trust ultimately in your career, you're investing in a company that's going to fail. It's not a good investment, ultimately. Your career is not a strong enough bridge to drive the truck of your life over. So for all these reasons, working without trusting is anxious and empty. Now, I know that that's not the message that's being broadcast in Shanghai or in our world today. It's not a, a message championed by social media influencers, I don't think. 
Celebrity culture is not going to share that. Advertisers certainly not. And it's not even the message that's being reinforced by everyday people. So we tell young people that you get good grades, do well on tests, get into a good college, work long hours, build your career, uh, purchase property, acquiring physical possessions, uh, and, and you'll have a full and meaningful life. I remember a number of years ago, I uh, did a membership interview for WSBC here, uh, a brother named Michael Liu. Some of you know him. I think he was here a couple weeks ago. Uh, it, was a, it was very moving to interview him because he, he basically shared his life story as one in which he was always doing the, the next thing he was supposed to do. So he was always taking the, the, he grew up in Singapore, he would take the next test and he was trying to be diligent and do it, uh, go to college, got, got a job, started seeing some success. And the way he describes it, he just woke up one day and he, he was like, why did I ever never ask why? Why did nobody ever talk to me about why? It was, it was like a light bulb came on, he just started asking the question. What is the point of all this? And because he realized that there, there's no answer in, in my brain and I've never heard another answer, it started him on this search that eventually led him to faith in Christ. I think that's the situation of so many people. Maybe you've heard the quote, the two most important days in a person's life, <clears throat> the day they were born and the day they figure out why. Crazy thing is that that's a quote by Mark Twain, famous atheist. I think about that sort of thing in an atheistic culture. There is no why if there is no God. And so Solomon steps in here. He wants us to face this fact, working without trusting. There's no one to trust, nothing to trust. It's anxious. It's empty. All right, let's think about, secondly, working with trusting. What's the contrast here? Restful and fruitful. Uh, looking there at the very last bit of, of verse 2, and then 3 through 5. He grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court or at the city gate. Uh, looking here primarily at stanza two, but the, the last phrase of uh, uh, verse two, it's a key hinge point for us, for he grants sleep to those he loves. And that there's a, a word play in Hebrew that we miss in, in both in English and in Chinese. Uh, to those he loves is Jedidiah. Uh, in Hebrew, it means beloved of Yahweh, to those he loves. And it was the second name given to Solomon by the prophet Nathan when he was born. So, so Solomon is, is using his own uh, uh, Xiaoming, his second name here. Um, he's saying that the reason he is able to lay down and rest from all the work of building and watch, watching over and working is knowing that he's the beloved of Yahweh, that he is Jedidiah. If you're looking for a good name, by the way, we need to bring it back. Uh, we may have a Jedidiah here, and I don't know it, but um, he knows that he's the beloved of Yahweh. That's what fuels his rest. And he's saying to us, that's how you will know rest, that he's your loving father, that you can trust him. You're able to sleep. 
I think it's really important for us to grasp. It's not that the person trusting in God doesn't work. That's not the contrast. There is still building and keeping watch and going to work. But all of this is done under Yahweh's watch, with Yahweh's blessing, according to Yahweh's rules. And so when it's time to sleep, there's sleep. A couple applications for us here. Uh, One has to do with anxiety in our lives, which we all have. We all have anxiety, every single one of us. Uh, We need to be honest about the fact that anxiety in a Christian comes at the root from unbelief, from not believing that God is there and that he's good and that his promises to the believer will all come to pass. Uh, We we forget about that uh, and we don't pray. I, I think the application here is to pinpoint that thing in your life that's bringing about anxiety right now and just examine how much you are praying about it. If I do that, I realize half my problem right away. I, I, I dwell on things I'm anxious about. I, I talk to others about the things I'm anxious about, but, but I'm slow to pray about those things. I mean, the reason the apostle would say don't be anxious for anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, present your request to God And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He means us to know how to deal with anxiety in our lives. So are you doing that this morning? Are you pinpointing your anxiety, confessing the unbelief that's underneath, and then giving it back to the Lord? He will keep in perfect peace He whose mind is stayed on me because he trusts in you. A second application here relates to our work. Uh, We are to work. We should be careful not to overwork. What do I mean? Well, the one trusting in God has a rhythm of work and rest. They can come home at a reasonable time because work isn't the only thing that Yahweh has asked them to do. There's family, there's church, there's rest. They can do each thing in its time, in the right proportion. They think that God is able to take the the five loaves and two fish and, and multiply it to be enough. I wonder how you're doing with trusting God with the rhythms of your life. Would you say that you're living life in the right proportions? Now, what comes next is really interesting, and and if there are any parents of uh, newborns here, uh, you might have the same struggle as I do, uh, which is how to connect verses 1 to 2 in talking about sleep with immediately then thinking about children. Like, do these things go together? I was actually talking to a pastor friend in Singapore, and I was like, you know, verses 3 to 5 are their famous verses. They're, they're, They're often quoted about children, but... I don't see the connection point. I'm just, help me understand as I ask this pastor friend in Singapore. He says, the reason you don't understand it is because you're not Chinese. Literally, he said, and I was like, what do you mean? He said, well, for for a Chinese person, uh, once you think about the the work and the the labor and the toil and the safety, if you're going to have a complete picture of the blessed life, now we have to think about children. It's the most natural thing in the world. 
He says because you see, Bang Ren, you don't. I said that might might be true. That might be true. But I think that the textual link here is thinking about what God gives to His people. He gives them rest. He gives sleeping in peace as a gift. He also gives children as a gift. Now let's think about children for a moment.、Uh, it's safe to say that that children are the quintessential blessing. In the Old Testament,、uh, the original command in Genesis was to be fruitful and multiply, and we see throughout the Old Testament that being barren was seen as a curse, and the birth of children was seen as a blessing. We see it in the patriarchs and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We see it with Israel and Egypt, where Pharaoh keeps persecuting them and they keep multiplying. Solomon here describes children, therefore, as a heritage and a reward. And verse four and five, Solomon wants to illustrate his point that children are a blessing. So he says, a, a warrior with arrows in his quiver, in his bag, is a strong warrior. It's an equipped warrior. If he's confronted with the enemies, he has help and protection.、Uh, the reference there to the the, the city gate、um, is is a reference to the place where business happened. Usually in, in ancient cities, so we can see in the Book of Ruth that、uh, property transactions actually had to be done there at the city gate with with witnesses and that sort of thing. So I think the picture is as an aging person who has the help of their children、uh, defending them from being taken advantage of、uh, at the city gate. I think we can picture that kind of a scene. So children are a blessing. I think Solomon would be quite surprised. At modern attitudes towards children, I mean, our, our society does see them as valuable, but the words we tend to use when we talk about children are more likely to be expensive,、uh, tiring, uh, burdensome. Pibe,、uh, you know, I'm trying to think of what, what Chinese words, angui, or something like that.、Um, it seems. That the modern attitude is wait longer to have kids and have less kids, which is exactly the opposite of what is said here. Have more, have them young. Now, this is wisdom literature. So, if you're looking for advice on family planning, I don't take this as a command.、Uh, let's be clear on that. But, but I think all of us, but certainly young married couples, would be. Right to contrast the wisdom of the age with the wisdom of the scriptures here. I mean, we're, we're wise to read this, to believe it, and be fruitful and multiply. I'll just say it that way. But not all of us are married. Not all of us can have kids. For some of us, that's a thing of the past. So, what is the truth that we're supposed to take from this? We said the link was God's good gifts. He, he gives sleep. He gives children. So, so let's take three lessons about God's good gifts that we see through children. That's what I want to do. Three things. First, God's gifts are to be enjoyed. God's gifts are to be enjoyed. So, so many view children as an idol to be worshipped or, or as something to take pride in. So we either pour too much of our hopes and expectations into them, or we turn them into a reflection of ourselves. I have a pastor friend in in Shanghai who's,、um, I, whenever I'm in Shanghai, I spend Chinese New Year,、uh, I go to their house, 
Uh, parents are atheists. Uh, I like his dad a lot. Um, he told me that the, the hardest thing about having a son who's a pastor is that when he gets together with his friends and they start talking about what their, their kids do, they start bragging on their kids, he doesn't have anything to say because they don't understand what's a pastor. They don't, they don't, know, they don't know what that is, so he just has to be silent. It's really hard for him. He's, he's embarrassed. Uh, he's honest about that. Well, <clears throat> notice here that viewing children as a gift means that we ought to enjoy them as meant for our blessing. They're a heritage. They're a reward. It doesn't mean they're never a headache. Uh, Derek Kidner's commentary on the Psalms, if you want one commentary on the Psalms by Derek Kidner, uh, really faithful expositor. One of my favorite quotes. This is what he writes about this verse. See if I can do it without choking up. It is not untypical of God's gifts that first they are liabilities, or at least responsibilities, before they become obvious assets. The greater their promise, the more likely that these sons will be a handful before they are a quiverful. I like that very much. But here's the question. Do you take time to thank God for children? Yours or other people's? It's one of the first things I notice when I come to a church. It's the children. A church that has children should be regularly rejoicing over that fact. And I think we can extend it out to the other gifts that God has given us. I mean, we're so prone to focus on what's going wrong in our lives right now. Do you take time to thank God for the good gifts he's given you, to enjoy them? I mean, God's gifts are meant to be enjoyed, number one. Second, God's gifts are to be stewarded. They're to be stewarded. The image here of a quiver full of arrows reminds us that children have a purpose. You have an arrow because you intend to shoot the arrow. Sorry, I just... <laughs> I was going to talk about Caroline, but it's a little bit hard. I just We dropped our oldest daughter off at uh, college. Uh, she's the first Collins to go out into the world and try to make something of herself, that sort of thing. Um, I think back to all that we invested in her. I mean, it was, it was just yesterday <laughs> that we were at Xintiandi, the hospital, Reijin, EUN is where she was born. I mean, that's just yesterday to me. That was 18 and a half years ago. Think about all that we invested in her, all the teaching, the example that we hoped we set for her, things that we prayed for her. It's a stewardship, and it passes quickly. You know, you don't get a second chance with the things God gives you to steward. You get one chance. So we got to extend this out. When, when God, God means for you to think about yourself as a steward, whatever he's given you, your time, your talent, your treasure, your opportunities, he gives it to you to use. I met a guy recently who told me that his main hobby was buying expensive watches. This brother in the church, I just looked at him and I, I didn't want to embarrass him, but I was like, really? That's it? Like buying expensive watches? I'm sorry if you like expensive watches, but <laughs> brothers and sisters, whatever he's given us, it, it is required that he who has been given a trust must prove faithful. There, there's, there's no, 
there is a day coming when God will ask you to give an account for what he's entrusted you with. So use it well now. God's gifts are to be enjoyed. God's gifts are to be stewarded. Third and finally, God's gifts are to be expected. They're to be expected. Maybe biological children. It may be as for the Apostle Paul, single man, spiritual children. He called Timothy my true son in the faith. We should expect that God desires to give good gifts to his children. I mean, Jesus said, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. God gives us good gifts because he intends us to be fruitful in one way or the other. We should pray for that. We should expect that. So do you? Do you expect God to bless you? I haven't been around for a few years, but but I wonder collectively as a church, as you think about what God is calling you to do in Shanghai, is your mindset to attempt great things and expect great things? That's, that's That's the great sermon by William Carey. That's his little couplet. Attempt great things, expect great things. I wonder if you're expecting in your workplace to be used to bring people to faith in Christ. Are you expecting that? In your school? In your neighborhood? I wonder if you're expecting this congregation to grow with both biological and spiritual children. I wonder if you're expecting this congregation to be used in missions and church planting. God's gifts are to be enjoyed, they're to be stewarded, they're to be expected. We should conclude. We talked about sleep in the beginning. Sleepless in Shanghai. An anxious age struggles to rest. Solomon is trying to teach us about what it looks like to trust God as we work for him in this life. He's looking back as an old man on his life, and he's coming up with some conclusion. And this is it. He presents it to us. Working without trusting, anxious and empty, but working with trusting, restful, sincere. Let's pray. Our Father, you've been so good to us in Christ. It's a joy for us to start our week by remembering your grace remembering how you've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And we pray now both that you would give us the rest that belongs to the the beloved of Yahweh, and we pray also that you would make us fruitful for our good and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.